Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to My Millennial Property. I'm John Pigeon and I'm joined again by Emily Wallace. How are you, Emily? I'm not too bad, John, but we were meant to actually be in person today and I was very much looking forward to it because some people might not realise, but you and I record this or have had to record this virtually due to the world we live in at the moment. Um, And you were going to come down to Melbourne today and record some episodes, but that's okay. I can still see your smiling face. Sad times. Mm. We were 24 hours short. I was down there until the day before and it just did not happen, unfortunately. But that's the world we're living in. We just got to roll with the punches, don't we? Yep, 100%. And now you're, you're back up on the central coast. I'm here in Melbourne. We're both staying safe. Correct. Yep. And we're both in lockdown. Yep. So we thought we'd record a few episodes. Why not? What else are we going to do? <laughs> That's right. So while we're on you and I, mm. let's um, let's have a chat about what we actually do individually as separate businesses because uh, there's a lot of people out there that have got some questions over what we actually do other than just talk uh, a whole heap of uh, hopefully good information on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to start? Definitely. It's so interesting because I think people don't quite realise that, um, yes, we do do other things outside of podcasting. So um, I'm a buyer's advocate or a buyer's agent down here in Melbourne. And I guess the key area of focus that I have is I actually buy first and family homes. So although in this podcast, we touch on investment strategies and we talk about investment properties and I'm an investor myself, um, when it comes to my professional services, I actually just buy first and family homes. And when I can't help out, I help um, connect people to uh, other advocates that do the same across Australia. Awesome. Yeah. So when you when you talk Melbourne, mm. um, specifically, are we covering all of Melbourne? Do we specialise in one area? Um, we're talking houses, apartments, a little bit more depth, please. Yeah, certainly. So um, I buy all sorts of properties um, in terms of residential properties. I don't buy commercial. Um, and the areas that we operate in personally, it's a lot of the southeast Bayside area. Melbourne people will know what that, that looks like. Um, and also the inner north. So to give some examples, Preston, Thornbury, Northcote, Coburg, that little cluster. Um, But when it's outside of those areas, we actually have partnerships with um, other advocates where we can join up together um, and sort of cover some more ground, particularly in the West, because we don't cover the West personally, um, and help people out. So yeah, not exclusive to apartments or, or houses, we buy all sorts of properties. And those are the key areas that we operate in. Awesome. That's great. So for anyone listening in Melbourne that wants their first home to, to live in, essentially, uh, Emily's your person, regardless of where it is in Melbourne, she can definitely help you. If it's not her personally, it'll be through uh, a third party buyer's agent or advocate that has been approved by your good self, Emily. 
Most definitely. It's funny, you know, your name has come up in so many of my discovery calls this week, John, because you do what I don't do, um, which is, you know, in the investment side of things. And I've um, shout out to people who I've spoken to this week that are probably the following week now going to speak to John um, to shortcut that process. John, please tell the listeners what it is that you do. Yes. So it's, it's fortunate that we both do what each other doesn't because otherwise that might be a, a bit of a, a, a conflict, right? <laughs> or it'd be like, oh. pick your favourite. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Who wins? Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, as you said, we cover um, a buyer's agent service or a buyer's advocacy service for investors. Um, now, they might be buying their own home to live in, but essentially they're saying, look, we want to go and buy a property. We need some help with that. I wouldn't say anywhere around Australia, but definitely when we're talking Victoria, South Australia, uh, New South Wales, Queensland, they're our most common, a little bit of ACT, um, they're, they're our most common areas that we that we focus on and do our research around. Uh, majority of it is for investors wanting to maybe buy their second home or third home or just even rent vest um, or free vest as we call it these days. Mm. So, uh, but in saying that, yeah, we're we're helping someone find their owner occupier home in Sydney at the moment. So, yep. yeah, um, it's it's really, and I suppose to go deeper into that, we're a little bit different. We we came in with a bit of point of difference in this space, um, whereby we've we've got two different packages. So that first one is. Uh, let's hold hands and and go and find a property together as opposed to the traditional way of going about it where basically sit back and relax and um, we'll present properties to you, shortlist and and let's go and buy that one property. That's a more of a a cost-efficient way of doing things for the client but it's also an an education knowledge journey that they can go on uh, for their first time because someone might be pretty, um, I suppose, uh, daunted by the fact of going and finding their own property on their own. It is a really daunting task. And um, someone that I was speaking to this week, his name escapes me, but I know he'll be in contact. I know he listens religiously, so he's probably like, that's me that you're referencing. Um, He was saying, look, I'm really nervous to make a mistake um, and I I really want someone to run the numbers with me. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, John's your person because as much as I you know, um, run numbers in terms of like, how can we negotiate this and what's it worth? The investor numbers are very different to someone owning their own home and what they look for overall. Like someone who's purely buying a first or family home to live in doesn't really mind what the rental return is going to be because it's irrelevant. Whereas you're all across that. Yeah, and there's a lot of more depth to go into, isn't there? There's so many moving parts when it comes to investing. So yeah, that that's where we play that part. And then package two is is that traditional service where yeah, we'll go and do it all for you, sit back and relax. Uh, but just as a as a result of what we do and why we do it, we still give that little bit of education piece and and make sure that we've uh, we're fully understanding what's going on, uh, even though we're, we're sitting back and relaxing. So that's a snapshot of what we both do. Definitely. And if you're a long-term listener and you didn't know that, hopefully that provides a bit of clarity. If this is your first episode you've ever listened to of our podcast, welcome. We love hearing from our listeners and we, we love being able to help as uh, where we can as well. You know, Obviously on the podcast, answering your questions, but if you do need help actually acquiring properties, now you know what we can help with individually. So um, feel free to reach out in whatever way seems fit. And and just on that, like I'm in the last few weeks, I don't know about you, but 
I've, I've been getting messages from people that have been listening to the podcast for 12 months, two years, uh, been saving hard, taking it all in mm. and then have transacted in the last three months, six months and are, and are just so over the moon with what they've done. And and it's amazing feeling, isn't it, to, to have had a small impact in someone's life even though we've never met them, uh, never helped them other than the fact that we've just been talking on a podcast. I know, it's so weird. It's just you and I like looking at each other across a screen um, and then you do hear those stories of people actually buying or someone who just, yeah, religiously listens and, you know, the podcast means a lot to them each week when an episode comes out. That means a lot to us. So thank you for supporting the podcast in whatever way Absolutely. that you do. For sure. Yeah, so uh, let's get into the meat of the conversation today. Let's so we're talking regional versus city. Now it's it's almost Emily versus John. Ooh, I'm feeling today. What a showdown! <laughs> <laughs> if it was a boxing match, I wouldn't win. I mean, I, no, my dad no. says I've got knots in cotton for muscles, but um. <laughs> no, no, I'm a lover. Um, but yeah, look, when we say city versus regional, and, and it's been probably more common in the last three or four years, mm. in, in my experience anyway, because housing prices have gone nuts in in city centres. More importantly, probably Melbourne and Sydney in that space. But yes. yeah, um, we, we just want to thrash it out because a lot of people are, are giving us feedback or, or questions or queries to say, do I buy regional, do I buy, do I buy city, what's the difference? Um, so we're going to thrash that out in a bit more detail, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. It's been a common one that's popped up and rightfully so. And obviously with COVID in the mix and people potentially making regional changes too in their lifestyle um, and considering that, there's obviously different factors at play for both of those um, markets. Um, And we're lucky that, yeah, we're both across different ones. Mm, Absolutely. So the Real Estate Institute of Victoria uh, have released an article this week um, just saying regional house prices have soared more than 10% in three months as Melbourne has maintained its million-dollar median. So uh, that's basically saying, well, Melbourne's continuing to do its thing as it always has, uh, but regional is is um, is performing extremely well because of the affordability, isn't it? Yeah, and historically regional has always been more affordable um, for a number of reasons um, and it still remains, you know, affordable depending where you're looking and what you deem as affordable, but it's certainly by comparison to metro areas, um, your money goes a lot further. So then it's a balancing act, isn't it, as to what you prefer and why? Yeah. So we we look at somewhere like uh, Turak, which is undoubtedly the most expensive suburb in Victoria, has a median price of around $5 million. So most of us probably aren't playing that game at, at around that $5 million mark, um, conservatively speaking. Mm. Hawthorne East, interestingly enough though, Emily, mm. uh, Melbourne's top growth suburb with a median sale price surging 42% oh to $2.9 million, making it the state's second most expensive suburb. So talk to us about median house price. Well, in, in that example there, it's funny how the median starts to creep when people cotton on to something, right? So there are always areas that um, I have my eye on with the median that I watch very carefully. And that's sort of an indicator as to where someone's budget might fall um, and taking in their lifestyle factors and what they want in a suburb, what they can, you know, where that sort of lands them. When you 
have an area that people finally cotton on to, particularly when they realise it's not too far from the CBD. Um, and you get a snowball effect of one vendor selling out and getting a great result and then a snowball of other people going, oh, well, what, what could my place sell for? You start to see that hype and that median creep up because you've had a lot of sales in quick succession. And usually in a rising market, as the name suggests, the prices keep rising up and up and up. So that median starts to change. So yeah, Hawthorne East doesn't surprise me that it's, uh, well, it does in some respects, it's a big jump. Um, mm. But there's other areas. One that I had my eye on for a long time was a place called Dingley Village. And I wouldn't be surprised, I don't know the exact stat, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's not too far behind in the jump. It just, you know, it's just one of those areas, it just happens. Mm. And one thing to keep in mind with the, the median price of an area is the size of that, that particular suburb or, or the, the area uh, and, and also what that suburb represents. For, for example, if it's a bayside suburb where there's, there's ocean views and there's, um, uh, you, you've, you might have a property that's worth $10 million, but then the suburb might uh, expand, say, 5K into another region that has no views, no appeal whatsoever, and the house price might be $2 million, for example. So that, uh, I suppose, plays around with the median house price a lot, doesn't it? Definitely. The data pool as well, like based on how like geographically how far the area actually covers. There's some suburbs that are only like a 2K radius. There's some that are 15 if you, you know, go way further out. So yeah, you definitely got to um, look into why it might be higher. Um, there's obviously different factors at play when you're considering a median. Yeah. So going back to the Turak and Hawthorne East, Hawthorne East being the second most expensive below Turak, yep. I love a poor cousin purchase. <laughs> now, now, a poor cousin purchase, for those listening, uh, is basically saying, well, a suburb is really appealing, might be blue chip, um, and, and let's say, for example, it might be a million dollars. There's a suburb next to it that's maybe not so favourable. The shops aren't as, um, aren't as nice, the, the streets aren't as nice, but proximity to particular locations and uh, proximity to that blue chip suburb is extremely close, yet the median house price is maybe two hundred, three hundred thousand less, yeah. because people, uh, it's not the done thing to go and live in that particular suburb. I love that so type of opportunity. Now, in my research this morning, I don't often research a lot in preparation for these uh, <laughs> sessions. By the way, we just talk, um, <laughs> we just chat. Turak, Turak, and Hawthorne East are four point five kilometres away. Yes, from each other. Yes. From each other. Yep. So I'm calling Hawthorne East the poor cousin of Turak. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it sits diagonally across from Turak basically. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. sort of um, – So yeah. it, there's no surprise that Hawthorne East has jumped – well, 42 is a lot, but it it, there's no surprise that it's jumped uh, a considerable amount when you look at the fact that, well, I can't afford to buy in Turak, but Hawthorne East is, uh, is my next best option. Do you know what's interesting about those – poor cousin stories um, that I find a simul uh, similarity in some of them. You'll notice, and, and Melbourne people would know this, or if you look it up on a map, um, there's a dividing line. And the divider on this is the top side and the bottom side of the M1. Right. Now, there's another situation um, similar to Turak where we look in Brighton, no offence to yes. Brighton people, um, <laughs> where we have Brighton and the neighbouring suburb Bentley and the dividing line is the Nepean Highway and it's a mental mm. barrier for a lot of people. So yes. when you're looking potentially for opportunities of where can you um, be close to these blue chip suburbs and 
reap the rewards of being nearby, but you're not having to pay the price tag of that particular postcode, maybe look for those dividing lines. Because I can tell you now, people do have mental barriers over dividers, whether it be a freeway or a main arterial um, or a main road, people actually do place a lot of value on that. Mm, Totally. Yeah. So, you might be listening saying, well, this Hawthorne East, this Turak, this Brighton stuff, it doesn't excite me because I can't afford it and I never maybe will be able to. So, But that's cool. It's just reference points to understand medium price, um, talking about poor cousins, talking about value for money. Um, but, but after the break, we're going to dig deeper into regional versus city, aren't we? Most definitely. We'll be back in just a minute. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right. So I think when, when you're buying an investment property to start with, uh, it, the strategy is extremely important um, and, and you've got to have down pat what the yield's going to be or what you want the yield to be, what price you're going to be spending um, and more importantly, what type of property you're going to be buying. And this is where the, the regional versus metro becomes a really important um, conversation because we might be able to buy, and I'm just pulling a figure, and we're staying in Victoria today just because Emily knows Melbourne more uh, and, and I can talk regional, but we, we might have a situation where there's a unit in St Kilda for, say, $500,000, but I can buy a three- or four-bedroom house in Ballarat uh, on a maybe a five 600-square block for $500,000, mm. right? The yield may be the same, the price point is the same. However, I've got a different type of property. Now, that's when a lot of people put their hand up and say, well, what should I do? Yeah. I mean, when you lay that out like that, it is very much a debate of what you should do. And the differences, well, we can talk through them. There's quite a few, isn't there, really, you have to consider. Yeah. So I think when we, when we look at that, what's most common for people to do is to actually buy where they know. Mm. And that can be very dangerous to the point where we need to understand if we're going to buy where we know, 
that's okay because we're able to sleep at night because we, we know the streets, we may have grown up there, we know someone who lives there, we know the schools, etc. However, do we know what the historical performance of that type of property has been over the last five, ten years and, um, and beyond? We need to search that before we say, yep, I'm going to – my strategy is going to be a unit – two bedroom in this particular suburb for 500,000. Definitely. And I think that's the difference between, you know, what feels good. Like a lot of people go off, they're feeling, oh, I know this place and it feels good to me. Um, That's an emotional buyer versus I know the facts and I know this is a good purchase because I've run my numbers. They're two very different ways of thinking when you're buying. And when you've got your investor hat on, you really need to have the numbers stacking up behind you. You can't just feel right because guess what? Just feeling something, if we all just felt right about something, it'd be very interesting market um. yeah that's right and and you really using emotion aren't you totally when you when you say yeah I'm going to buy local here because that's what I know and what I feel um, without using any type of uh, research I suppose but uh, like for what you do Emily you're dealing with owner occupiers right mm. so you've you've definitely got more emotional buyers because they're buying their own home whereas investors uh, shouldn't be wrapped up too much in emotion and just definitely running with logic and research and numbers. Yeah, I don't think you'll ever see uh, an investor cry tears of joy when they purchase um, <laughs> like you will an owner-occupier, but, you know, no. it, it could happen. Um, but, yeah. yeah, it's very, very different. One thing I just wanted to touch on that sort of sprung to mind as you were laying out those or sort of visualising, you know, the one the $500,000 apartment in St Kilda versus your three- or four-bedroom home in Ballarat. One thing to factor in, um, in that is the obvious one is size, right? So you obviously, your money goes further in the Ballarat property, but also with size can come more maintenance um, Mm. and more upkeep of a property. And I actually think that's something that a lot of people don't consider is that once you buy a property, you have to maintain the property. Uh, Mm. And I think particularly, um, you know, when you have tenants in and um, they're probably going to find the problems in the property because you haven't lived in it as an investor, you really do need to account for that. And I I think it's a massive oversight. I'm not sure if you see it in some people who buy as well, but it's one of the most common things people actually don't budget for. Yeah, very good point. And and I was going to talk about risk profile. So let's roll that into that now is is saying, well, if if my... I suppose risk risk tolerance or excitement around property is, no, I just want something to set and forget that's easy. I know it's got strata fees of four grand a year. Um, I'll factor those in, but I know that I won't have to lift a finger, provide any maintenance. It might be new um, for, for the next 20 years and that's my risk profile and that's what I'm comfortable with. Aside from all the research and knowledge around market growth and everything else, I just know I'll be able to sleep at night. So mm. we've, we've got to appreciate that, that everyone's different, everyone's got a different personality. Um, and, and I think as an individual listeners, you need to understand what your risk profile is right now and what you're open to and what you're not open to. Because what you do, Emily, as an investor, uh, compared to what I'll do as an investor, are totally different. Um, and, and my best option to buy right now 
uh, might not be relevant for you regardless of how much money you're going to make purely because your risk profile is different. It's so true. And I think your risk profile is subject to change the longer that you're in the market and the more properties that you're exposed to and potentially the more properties that you buy. I think um, that risk profile, you start to maybe take on more risk once you're comfortable with a certain level. Um, so it doesn't mean you're always going to settle for something that's, you know, just comfortable. Um, mm. But certainly, you know, to be aware of it. And I also think, you know, the amount of risk you're willing to take on obviously correlates with reward as well. You know, big, the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward, but you've got to be comfortable with what, what you're doing with your money because it's important to, to feel safe about it. Yeah, totally. So I suppose, as I mentioned before, strategy, understanding what your strategy is, number one, uh, what yield you need from that property based on your cash flow, based on when you're going to buy again, uh, what your servicing is going to be like in the next few years, are you planning on having kids? Um, do you want to buy your owner-occupier at some stage, which requires a, a cash deposit ideally, uh, what the banks will lend you and what price you're coming in at and what you're comfortable with that price. Again, the risk profile, Emily, you're probably happy to go and spend $2 million. I'm happy to go and spend 800000 for example. So that puts you in a very different market. Um, but I think the difference of really uh, city versus regional and when we're comparing uh, two potential purchases is indeed that type of uh, property that we want to, uh, to purchase, isn't it? Definitely. I think the other obvious one that, that comes to mind for me when you think of regional versus um, the metro areas is certainly around amenities and accessibility because, I mean, the most obvious thing is that people live in the city because they work in the city, they... Um, maybe like attending events that are city-based and things like that. The lifestyle of a regional um, place can be very different to that. Of course, it's a city centre in most regional towns, um, but it's a lot smaller scale. And the accessibility to your major capital cities might be a few hours away. And so with that comes a demographic of people that is variant, um, that you're not going to find the same people in, you know, Melbourne CBD versus like a Ballarat or a Bendigo um, necessarily and a different way of life. And I think that that ultimately, as much as it has changed over the last, you know, year to 18 months, that ultimately can be a very big deciding factor as to the types of people that are going to rent those properties and what the vacancy rates might look like um, and how good the opportunity is. Yes, very good. And and that vacancy rate is a really important factor um, for, for any investor going to take the plunge. Um, so just for reference for, for listeners, if we usually work vacancy rates as a percentage, mm. right? And, and I I use SQM Research as mostly my go-to point for, for checking vacancy rates um, amongst a, num a number of other things. Um, but at the moment, you'll find most areas have a vacancy rate of under 1%, which Great. means 1% one, 1 is roughly equivalent to one week of vacancy per year. So if something's got a 5% vacancy, you know that your dwelling on average will be vacant for maybe five weeks of the year, which is quite extreme, I think. So mm. we should be aiming for somewhere around 2%. That's nice and, um, and I suppose affordable if we have to 
cough up two weeks of, of rent or holding costs. Uh, but but understanding that's a suburb and it's a bit, little bit like the median price, isn't it? Mm. The vacancy uh, percentage is the suburb average. Yes. It's not the actual dwelling particular to you, to what you're buying. Uh, it, it's not that percentage itself. So the first thing I would do is to actually check what that complex or that street or that um, that type of market, if it's a three-bedroom house or a one-bedroom unit, what vacancies are we experiencing with that sort of dwelling? And that's probably getting on the ground and talking to the local agents as well as looking at your data online. Definitely. And, you know, a property that's presented well for rental, obviously, you know, might outperform another in terms of how quickly it's snapped up and how desirable it is. You might have multiple applications within the first viewing and that's great, but you didn't have a good handle on that. Um, And you'll often find a good property manager will help guide you on what the rent really should be because I know from first-hand experience, you know, um, having something up for three fifty a week and having it sit there versus having it up for three forty a week and getting it snapped up straight away—it's ten dollars a week difference. You probably the opportunity cost there is just just get it rented, get some cash flow in, and get the right person in, yeah. um, and and cover that that gap if needed um, yourself. So definitely, I think a good property manager can also give you a good handle on on what it should be. Yeah, for sure. Good team of people is is important, isn't it? So, mm. so in um, are there any more indicators that we want to want to discuss in and around this city versus regional purchase? Um, I think from the investor side of things, which is a classic one, um, and you probably have some sort of metric that you like to have as a, a standard, but the number of properties or the percentage of properties that are owned versus um, investor owned, because that also then plays into the vacancy rates of how many properties are coming up for rent um, in that area. Do you have like a number that a percentage that you wouldn't touch an area if it exceeded a certain amount? Yeah, good question. Ideally, 99.1 is my ideal percentage. (laughs) (laughs) Where would you find that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's a great indicator to keep an eye on. And and not so much just in the suburb, but in the actual complex itself, if you're buying a unit, right? So you might have 15 units in your complex, or you might have 100 units in your complex. Um, Now, 95 of those might be Mm owner-occupier. That's going to be a lot more appealing to live in, um, for for your tenants to live in, for for everyone concerned, if you've got a high owner-occupier percentage in that particular complex. And then the same in your street that you're buying. If it's a house uh, in your suburb, in your street, what is the percentage of owner-occupiers? And there's there's a few different metrics that we use, but again, it's really it's a good idea to pick up the phone and talk to uh, property managers in the area, talk to real estate agents in the area, talk to as many people as you can in that particular suburb or that particular complex to then get an understanding of how many are in there. And whilst we we probably never know the true example or the the, the true number, we can get a feel for it. And, and um, people on the ground are, are living and breathing it. So you, you can pick up the phone and have a chat to those people. And just to touch on that, because some people are probably going, well, why does it matter how many investors there are and owners there are? It's not yep. that um, having tenants is in an 
uh, complex is a bad thing. It just means that it's probably less likely to get things done. For example, if you did live in a complex and um, the garden maintenance, you know, they wanted to put budget towards maintaining the front gardens, you're probably more likely to get people who are house proud and live and own um, in the block to put money towards that as opposed to an investor who's probably just more concerned about their rental return and that the properties performing the way it should. Same with, you know, at street level, you tend to get a better community feel when people are house proud um, and look after the property that they own as opposed to tenants. Tenants aren't bad people. I'm a tenant. I'm not a bad person. Um, but do I really care about the uh, the small garden that's on my balcony? Not really. Um, I'll probably fix it no. up when someone comes to inspect the property. So, no, um, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Just and and you probably, you won't go out of your way to improve that dwelling itself. And the owner, as you said, probably won't do it either because they got their rent coming in so they'll only do something maybe when it's required um, if you kick up a stink yeah um, so yeah so an example I use in the streets is how many cars are on the lawn right <laughs> when mm. when tenants are in the area we would um, as you said they're not quite as house proud so we're happy to to put our car on the lawn. Whereas the owner occupier loves mowing their lawn on a Friday, loves doing the edges, loves keeping it nice and um, nice and tidy. So understanding that as an example, it, it just brings down the standard of the area. If 50% are owner occupier, 50% are investor, you're also going to have higher for lease signs um, out the front of your street or out the front of your complex um, because renters, let's face it, they're more transient. They may be going to buy their own home now or they just want to move to another area. So you're going to have more for lease signs and you probably get more for sale signs, which also isn't a positive for the area. If, if um, people are coming and going, there's just no consistency in that area. So yeah, doing your checks on on owner-occupier versus uh, investor is a, is a really important one, isn't it? Yeah, most definitely. So is there anything else we need to add in to consider, you know, regional versus metro before we round this out? Look, I think the the key here is that it comes down to so many different indicators and not just one thing. It's not just gut feel. It's not just, your, well, maybe it is just your risk profile if you're not prepared to go anywhere else other than local where you live. But uh, as from an investment point of view, you've just got to factor in all these things that we've spoken about, combine them together to make an in informed decision. Um, and if you're paying someone else to do it on your behalf, still take an involvement and ask questions about all these things that we've spoken about today. Yes, certainly. So hopefully that has given you a bit of an insight. I know there's a few people who messaged me on my Instagram asking to do this episode and there has been a bit of talk in the Facebook group as well. So hopefully that has given you some clarity around what to consider. Um, if you do want to discuss more, particularly uh, on the regional side, don't forget that John does cover that and he can help you out. If you're more um, looking to buy your own home, in Melbourne, I can help you out. Um, but in any way that we can help by answering questions and just adding value to your property journey, please feel free to reach out to either of us. We're more than happy to give our time and you can find us, well, you can email us, you can find us in the show notes below our separate businesses. Um, but we look forward to bringing you another episode next week and answering some more questions. Absolutely. Good to chat. Enjoy your day. See you guys. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.